From the Cervera Newsroom in sunny Miami, welcome to the Miami Real Estate Podcast, your home for expert insight on all things Miami real estate. I'm your host, Omar DeWint. Let's get started. Today, we're bringing you our latest installment of Economic Insights with Dr. Marcy Russell. She is, of course, the chief economist for Severa Real Estate's global affiliate network, leading real estate companies of the world. This interview was conducted by Jessica Edgerton, Executive VP of Operations for Leading RE and our Miami real estate correspondent. She spoke with Dr. Russell last week during the Miami International Boat Show when Dr. Russell was here in town in sunny uh, Miami Beach. Their conversation covered a few hot topics for the month, including inflation, mortgage origination and consumer sentiment, loan delinquencies, housing inventory, and last but not least, the debt ceiling. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation, and we'll see you back here next week for our regularly scheduled programming. And now, here is Jessica Edgerton and Dr. Marcy Russell with the February 2023 Economic Insights Report on your favorite Miami real estate podcast. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to February 2023 Economic Insights with Dr. Marcy Russell. Dr. Russell, thank you so much for being with us. I think that's the first time I've ever called you Dr. Russell, but you are. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm coming to you today from beautiful Miami Beach, Florida. I am about two blocks away from the Miami Beach Boat Show, which I am not attending because I don't need a new boat. Um, but um, Miami is definitely, Miami Beach is hopping on this Friday morning. Let me just tell you. Enjoy. I am in Chicago and it is not hopping. It is cold and wet and rainy. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's start with inflation. Um, so December and January, we were feeling kind of bullish, right? There was a sentiment emerging that inflation was headed uh, in the right direction at a pretty nice pace in Q1. And overall, yeah, we're, we're seeing a downward trend. CPI was down 1.9 in January but it's sluggish, right? And we're not even talking about the core inflation numbers. So uh, why aren't we seeing a more robust easing at this point? Well, just to sort of review the numbers for everyone, um, the year-over-year inflation rate peaked um, in June of last year at um, a little over 9%. And since that time, the year-over-year inflation numbers have been slowly easing downward. And so this past month, um, we just got a number about two days ago, right? Um, and it came in at 6.4%. Um, and everyone was hoping for a little bit more than that, right? So the prior month, it had been at 6.5, and then it only goes down to 6.4. So rather than the 100 basis point increase, declines that really would make us all feel more comfortable about the trajectory of inflation, particularly the Federal Reserve, um, I would say that it was a disappointing uh, number that inflation is holding high. Um, food prices have stayed elevated. Um, you saw a slight bump up in energy prices over the course of last month. And so those two things together, which make up the headline number, um, came in disappointingly high, which of course, we're at one of those periods right now where the sort of um, 
the Federal Reserve is approaching some sort of turning point. And the turning point will be that they maintain rates at a certain level, right? And the terminal rate is somewhere between five and five and a half percent, um, which is consistent with mortgage rates um, somewhere between six and seven percent. Um, and then the question becomes, well, how long do they have to hold it there in order to get inflation back down to, I believe, they're going to have to see inflation between three and four percent before they become comfortable with lowering rates. And so we're 300 basis points away from that. And that's the sort of disappointment right now um, in terms of it's, we're getting there. We're just not getting there quite as fast as we need to. Talk a little bit about what's holding it up. You know, we've got CPI, we've got core. Where where are we seeing these numbers really stay up? Sure. So the headline number includes food and energy, which always are extremely volatile. And so economists like to look at core inflation, which strips out the volatile food and energy component, which of course we know because of the war in Ukraine, because of supply chain shocks, those two things have been very, very volatile. So to get a sense of what's happening underneath, we tend to look at core. And core has stayed very high as well. But I want to point something out to everyone. If you look at the January numbers, half of the increase in core was in the shelter index. Now, shelter includes three things. Shelter includes um, rent equivalent, which measures what's happening in the housing market, actual rents, right, which we know year over year have gone up quite a bit. Um, but remember, we talked about last time that um, 500,000 new rental units are likely to come online over the course of this year. So that's likely to take some pressure off rental prices. Um, but then also within the shelter index is um, hotels, hospitality. And for two whole years, right, um, hotel prices, particularly during the pandemic, were very, very low. But now that we're all back to traveling, um, probably in some cases even more than we did prior to 2020, because I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of making up for some lost time. So I've been on the road quite a bit, and I can tell you I have felt the pain of high hotel prices, and I bet a lot of you are as well out there. So it will take a little bit of time, you know, Capacity in the hotel industry doesn't come back very quickly. I will tell you one thing, though, in Miami Beach, there's a new hotel being built on pretty much every other corner down here, which I found sort of remarkable. Now, we know, you know, this part of America is booming um, compared to other ones, not just in hospitality, but also in the housing market as well. So this is not um, indicative of what's going on everywhere. Um, but I will tell you that that when you see concentrated increases that we are seeing in the shelter index, those things tend to see sort of roll back off as the months go on. And, and, and it suggests to me something that is going to be an overall theme for us today. And that is that we are finally back to 2019. That, that so many of the COVID distortions that we have talked about for the last almost three years um, have rolled off for the most part. And so when you look at prices, when you look at capacity, when you look at so many things, it really looks a lot like um, the pre-COVID era. All right, so let's stick to, we're getting some questions in, thank you. We're, we're gonna address this in, in, uh, towards, towards the end. Let's, let's stick with sort of housing here. So 
continuing with the, the, the middling news of this month, mortgage rates aren't in line with, with hopes either. Um, we saw a nice downward trend since November, but they're creeping back up again. And, and buyers are, are sort of reacting accordingly, right? Talk us through that and what, what you expect to see in the next few months. Well, what seems to be happening, Jess, and, and this is purely um, observational. There's no data. This is observational. This is my gut. And I suspect, though, that I, many of you would back me up on this. What seems to be happening is that, that buyers and sellers are comfortable with mortgage rates between six and six and a half. When you get back into the six to six and a half range, activity all of a sudden picks up. And the minute you go above six and a half, it just stops, right? And so that suggests that it's somewhere between six and six and a half that people are expecting to be kind of the long run rate that everything settles down to. So once you get in that space, activity suddenly starts happening again, right? So anytime you go above that, and we know that the trajectory for interest rates, it's never really smooth, right? It goes like this, it goes like this, it goes like this, but it's moving in the downward direction. When we got that negative inflation news, it knocked us off the downward trajectory for mortgage rates. Um, so, so that's kind of what happened. And the minute that happened, um, basically activity dries up. But one of the things I do know is that in the month of January, home builder sentiment increased seven points, right? Remember, that was yep. one piece of data that I thought, you know, there's, there's what's actually happening and then there's expectations for the future. And that, that home builder sentiment is an expectation that things are going to get better. It's just that the path to get there can't, is not completely smooth. And I believe that's sort of, um, again, consistent with this going back to 2019. Um, and, and I think we have a kind of a nice chart that, that demonstrates yeah. that. So I, I pulled a chart, you know, we don't always get heavy on the charts, but whenever I see one that I think is really useful, this one came from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and it was looking at new mortgages. Now, we can all see that this is a chart that goes back to 2017, right? And so new mortgages ran in the $500 million um, a year, right? So you can see that. So half a trillion dollars every single year. That was kind of the, the norm prior to the pandemic. So interest rates collapse during the pandemic, and you get on top of that the great rearrangement of economic activity where everybody wants a bigger house that they can work remotely from, they want a yard, they want outdoor space, they want to live someplace warm, right? So you get the great rearrangement, and you can see that in the new mortgage data that bumped up above a trillion dollars a year in 2020, 2021, but then things start to soften in 2022. And now we're basically just back to where we were prior to the pandemic, but it's slightly higher interest rates. So that suggests to me that that activity will settle a little bit above the 2019, 2018 level because of that demographic factor, which we haven't touched on in a while. And that is that all those millennials that were putting off home buying into their 30s, they're now there. And they're going to have to accept higher interest rates, higher prices, um, but their, their real need, driven by demographics, is going to overpower anything else that's going on over the course of the next decade. 
All right, so let's talk about those folks, and maybe a few others. Um, so sticking with the middling news, again, we're seeing uh, some, some activity on, on the delinquency side of things. So um, ominous stats coming out, um, a number of debt markets uh, are, are starting to see some delinquencies. And I think we have a chart for that, but can you talk us through that? Because yep. Yep. It's, yep. It's this is the headline right now, right? That if you're yeah. paying attention to the headlines, suddenly, um, delinquencies on automobile loans are picking up, delinquencies on credit card bills are picking up, delinquencies on mortgages are picking up, absolutely. But again, you gotta put that into perspective. Delinquencies during the pandemic era collapsed. There were no delinquencies, lots of stimulus money, lots of loan forbearance, um, and people were staying at home and had a tremendous amount of savings as a result. So they weren't spending money, they were saving lots of money, um, and then there were all kinds of programs to support incomes and support people's ability to repay. So you have to put the numbers today into sort of pandemic and pre-pandemic perspective. So when you look at these actual rates of delinquency, they just look like they looked in 2019. So again, more evidence that we are returning to the financial conditions that prevailed prior to um, the pandemic, which, you know, in my mind, I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I, that, that's, that's where we are sort of settling down to. So we are seeing these things pick up, but um, there, is a, there are a few sort of worrying things, you know, within this data. So this data came from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and they do a wealth survey every single quarter. And these numbers, um, all show that delinquencies picked up, so 90 days or more delinquencies across all categories of loans. But what was a little disturbing was when you dug into the numbers, um, the delinquencies look much worse for young people. And just this is the thing that, that if I sort of want to point out anything that I'm going to monitor very closely, anything that gives me pause, it makes me worry um, about the future, it's the fact that if you look by age category, it's the youngest people who are having the most trouble servicing their debt at a time when they're not paying their student loans because they're still in forbearance. So this is the group. Now, they're not the home buying group. Right. These are people who are pre home buying. So they're not the millennials. These are the Gen Xers that are having the hardest time paying their bills right now. Who may have overestimated those loan forbearances, got some credit cards, spent some stuff, and now they're about to hit a wall. Oh, I don't know, Jess. Did you ever do anything dumb when you were young? No, me? No, no. never. No me. stories. None. Nope. And there's no pictures to prove it either. The, that, thank God, I was not a teenager in the age of digital media. Um, so sticking with this, <laughs> see guys, Marcy and I are gonna have conference cocktails and all these stories are gonna come out. Yet another reason to come join us in, in Vegas in March. So let's stick with the delinquencies here. Um, you know, it, we keep saying it's not 2008, 2009. Once those delinquencies start becoming a part of the conversation though, I start getting my hackles up and remembering those days. Is there a little bit more of a reflection there than we've been talking about so far? Yes, because remember that the biggest difference um, for the economy overall, um, the difference between 2008, 2009 has to do with lending standards. So 
prior and, and leverage within the banking sector, right? So what made 2008, 2009 so terrible wasn't just foreclosures on the part of individuals who had taken out loans that they were never going to repay, right? That they didn't have the ability to repay. It was also that the banking sector was so heavily levered. Um, they were so heavily into debt. Basically, the, 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 the multiple on their leverage was about 40 for the overall financial system. So it didn't take much for the banking sector to collapse, right? Dodd-Frank comes along and puts restrictions on banks that make it harder for them to be profitable, uh, but it also took their leverage from 40 down to about 10, right? So banks are in a much better position to weather these delinquencies and so while these are bad for individuals, right? So anytime an individual gets into financial trouble, that's difficult, that's bad, it's bad for the economy because it means that they don't spend as much going forward as they try to sort of repair their own personal balance sheet. But what is devastating for an economy is when the banking sector, the institutions that we rely on to funnel credit through the economy get into trouble. Um, the, the, the analogy I make is that banks are the lungs of the economy, right? So people are the fingers, right? They're the fingers and the toes and all that. And, you know, your fingers and your toes can get into trouble, but your whole body will still work. If your lungs get into trouble, the whole body breaks down. Right. And so it's the health of the banking sector, ultimately, um, that makes the difference between 2008, 2009, and what's going on today. And also, even though it does look like young people sort of being who they are may be a little more indebted and may be getting into some trouble. If you look overall, there's still almost $2 trillion worth of excess savings sitting around in bank accounts. So obviously that excess savings is being held by sort of maybe the older, sort of more seasoned members of the economy like you and I, yeah. um, but that's another um, cushion uh, that the economy has available to it to sort of bridge. Uh, to, you know, to, to bridge us through these higher interest rates um, and, and, and this inflation that we're experiencing right now. Okay. All right. Um, so let's sort of stick with the institutional players here for a minute. Um, we, and we have a question from John. Hi, John, uh, on uh, inventory and, and builds here. Um, one of the things, and we've got a chart on this too, that we're seeing is, um, you know, it's not just home buyers that are maybe pulling back a little bit. Uh, we're also seeing a stall in sort of those institutional single uh, family buyers. And so let's talk about that. But I'm also wondering, and, and I'll read John's point here too. You mentioned before we're seeing, we're, you know, we're, we're hearing about some significant inventory coming on from, from new builds. As those, as those projects are sort of being planned out, is, is, are these numbers and are these stats going to start making a little bit of pullback on new inventory? Sure. Okay. And let me read John's too, because this is this is okay. sort of a nice additional layer to, to to the conversation. So, any predictions on when inventory will begin to build again in New York metro area? We're at about thirty percent of pre-pandemic levels, uh, so that's a long way to go. It is a long way to go. Now, remember too that um, building looks different depending on where you are. Um, throughout the economy. So every housing market is not the same. So what's going on in New York, particularly given um, the uncertainty around um, what's going to happen um, with, with Manhattan office occupancy rates, uh, Manhattan is still 
far below where they were prior to the pandemic. So it's understandable why not only are the banks nervous about what's going on in the New York area, you've got the commercial real estate um, overlay in the New York area that is restricting activity in that area. So sort of New York, Boston, San Francisco, I think all of those areas are going to have that extra sort of layer of uncertainty around their markets, particularly when it comes to inventory, because it's still not clear um, if, if businesses are going to be able to get workers back in the office, get them back commuting the way that they did before. So New York is a very, very different market. San Francisco, very, very different market than obviously sort of what's going on down here in Miami Beach. But speaking to the overall sort of inventory situation, um, yes, there are apartment buildings coming online, but home builders cut back last year. Yeah. So additional real additional apartments will take some pressure off of rents, right? So it'll probably keep some folks from actually you know becoming homeless, so to speak, and not having shelter overall. But in general, home building um, hasn't kept up with population growth really since the 1980s. So all we can do is make the situation a little bit better, um, but 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 inventory continues to be a problem. Um, I see no real um, political will to do the things that would be required to get inventory where it needs to be for housing markets in America to to look anything like what I would call normal. So the inventory problem doesn't go away. Um, it's simply exacerbated by high interest rates, right? That make it expensive, more expensive to build homes. Um, and nobody wants to let go of their low mortgage if they locked in over the last two or three years. So I, I keep looking for some good news. You know, I'm always looking for some good news. I just can't find it on the inventory side, at least when it comes to, you know, homes for sale. Yep. Okay. Um, we, these, we've got some questions that are going to relate back to this conversation, but there's another topic that I want to touch in on before we hit questions because we're, we're getting close to the bottom of the hour here, and, and that's on the debt ceiling. So last time we spoke, um, we talked about what it would look like if Congress didn't start uh, working together on some long-term solutions. I, I think the phrase that uh, we used to describe what would happen or that you did was really bad. So... <laughs> Um, the, the Treasury has put in, in place those extraordinary measures that we talked about, um, but we're not, you know, we've got kind of a hard June deadline on when that, that uh, padding will run out. We're not very far in, those, in, in, that, in that conversation. What's, what's going to happen, Marcy? All right. So when we get, so there's been no progress basically on negotiation since we actually surpassed the debt ceiling in January. So we've broken through it, basically. So we broke through the debt ceiling, um, and the debt ceiling is only about 100, I think it's 132 trillion, right? So that's the debt ceiling, and once you surpass it, the Treasury um, under Janet Yellen basically took these extraordinary accounting measures um, where they basically did some fiddling around with government employee savings accounts to basically, they're the ones buying up treasuries right now um, in an effort to keep us sort of able to pay our bills. That will only work until what the Bipartisan Policy Institute calls date X. And date X will be the moment when 
the treasury will have to simply rely on incoming revenues to write checks, right? So date X is probably going to happen sometime in June, which means that Congress has between now and then to avoid um, what would technically be a default on our debt. So just to be clear what would happen under those circumstances, um, military will not be paid. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid checks will cease to be written, um, and they will only be written when money coming in allows those checks to be written. So the last thing that will happen are that payments on the debt and interest on the debt will be suspended. So everybody else, it's just like an individual, right, Jess? So an individual is going to pay their mortgage, and they're going to make their car payment, but they'll cut everything else right? And they'll slow pay their vendors and they'll do all that kind of stuff. So basically the first thing that's going to get hit, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, payments to members of the military, obviously, you know, government employees will all be sent home, all that kind of stuff. That will throw um, consumer sentiment into, in, it will decline dramatically. Um, people will be so worried that they will stop spending money. And when people stop spending money, that's, technically a recession. So we don't have a recession right now because people are still spending money. we got a retail sales number just recently that shows that retail sales are holding up just fine. So a recession is defined as when people stop spending money. Government stops making social security payments. Oh, you can believe that people will stop spending money. So you'll see an immediate recession. You'll see a decline in the stock market, which will make anyone who holds stock feel a lot poorer, which means they'll stop spending money as well. Um, in addition to all that, our creditors around the world will demand higher interest rates um, to hold our debt because they will no longer trust us. And let me be totally clear, Jess, what's really ridiculous about all this, it's not that we can't pay, it's that we're not willing to. You see, when other countries like, say, Argentina get into trouble and default on their debt, it's because literally they can't pay. We can pay. We're just choosing not to. And I want to make that, I want everybody to really hear me out there because it's a subtle difference, but one that, that suggests and really drives home that this is not a real economic problem. This is a political problem. It's a bunch of people being real stubborn and not yeah. very rational. Um, unwilling to negotiate. So I want to call upon each and every one of you to reach out to yeah. your representatives and encourage them to negotiate. Not yep. to give in, but to negotiate. Thank you, Marcy. Rational behavior is always good when it comes to our government leaders. All right. <laughs> really bad, I think, is probably the accurate phrase. I, yes, I think we're going to really stick with that to describe what would happen. And we've got, what, until June 5th, something like that? Um, well, again, the Bipartisan Policy Institute, and I'll, I'm going to include a link in that, in that, um, in that document that you yeah. have to circulate to everyone, because this is the best source of information on this topic. It's Thank bipartisan. You. It's unbiased. You can totally trust it. And so I would encourage you to keep up with this. And this is the organization that's doing it. So who, who's, who is actually responsible for saying this is actually the date when we're going to run out of money? They're estimating right now, early June. But as they get closer, they'll sort of be the ones to depend on and that I'll be depending on. So I want you guys to all have that link so you can see it. They have great information. 
Okay, great. Let's go back to the housing market. We've got some questions coming in. Everybody jumped at the at the uh, inventory conversation. So let's let's read through a few of these. Um, from Russ, my opinion is that low inventory is due to aging population, aging in place and not moving. Um, it is less expensive to stay in home uh, than to move and healthcare advances, especially during the pandemic, right? Continue to contribute to that. Um, I'm a realtor 45 years in New York metro area and this is the trend. Would you comment on this? This is the trend. Oh, aging in place. Absolutely. Now, yeah. what I'm going to tell you guys is when when there's an economic problem that's enormous, and I would say that the 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 lack of inventory in the housing market in America, if I had to list sort of the five problems with the U.S. economy, like things that are bad, you know, certainly $130,000 worth of debt is not great, right? That's a problem, right? But I would argue that the low inventory of housing which has built up over decades, is one of the biggest problems facing our economy right now. And the fact that people are aging in place, and it's so much cheaper to do that than to move into assisted living, which is very expensive, and that movement to assisted living was disrupted certainly by the pandemic. No one after the experience of, of what we saw of any kind of institutionalized settings having to basically close off to visitors, um, uh, of course, no surprises there. Uh, so it is absolutely true that that is one of the factors affecting inventory. And depending on the demographics of your community, it's either going to be better or worse. So this is probably not a big problem in Denver, but certainly Metro New York or in my community of South Haven, Michigan, where the median age is almost 60 years old. People aging in place mean that, that they aren't moving on to different housing sort of options and freeing up those homes for younger people. But we also haven't built enough homes because of zoning restrictions. Um, I would applaud any community that is embracing the granny flat, the, you know, um, what multi-generational housing. Yes. All of those things. Like we have to attack this problem any way we can. And the focus on affordable housing um, is one that, that, that misses the point. Any housing, because Today's upper income housing becomes tomorrow's middle income housing, and today's middle income housing becomes tomorrow's affordable housing. So you have to always be building, just build, 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 and do whatever. And all of us need to watch our NIMBY tendencies, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Chad has another uh, sort of take that has been discussed a little bit on on the inventory, which is which is mortgage rates. Like people walked into these outrageously low rates. And now who's gonna who's gonna move out of that? Will you comment a little bit on that? That's right. So the this the the low rate of 2021, 20, 22 sort of lock-in, I believe will be a problem that will it's acute right now. But the reason people move over time is generally driven by the fact that they need more space because they're having larger families or a job means that they want to move somewhere else. So it's real things that happen to them that they cannot simply say, you know what, I'm not going to have another baby because I want to hold on to 2% mortgage rates or 3%, you know, it's beautiful mortgage rates that I've got on this condo in the city. That real life will eventually intrude upon um, those people who are kind of holding out, holding on to the rate. And so they won't be able to do that forever. It's a problem right now. It'll be 50% of a problem next year, 
25% of a problem the following year, it'll be 10% of a problem and just gradually get smaller and smaller and smaller. So that's a problem that's going to impact markets this year, but its influence will wane over time as real life decisions um, sort of change that calculus and make it impossible. So we have a question here from Kevin. I understand that investor slippers have completely fallen off the radar recently where they represented 15% prior. Without this activity, I'm assuming in some markets, prices will decline. Prices will decline, but more than that, hopefully inventory will loosen up. So believe it or not, I actually had one more chart that showed um, the decline in the institutional investor soaking up inventory to turn it into rental properties. And Jeff, how about we, we'll just circulate that basically. Yep. Um, in the circulation that you guys are all going to get on Monday. It yep. is absolutely true. Um, like I said before, inventory is never about one thing. Problems this big um, have all sorts of components to them. People aging in place, not enough building, zoning, nimbyism, and also the prevalence of institutional investors when capital was cheap, basically going into markets and buying up all kinds of inventory um, as an alternative investment. So that um, basically has, has dropped off a cliff recently. And that's one at least small piece of good news in the whole inventory story. And I love it uh, ending on a, on a piece of good news. So let's, let's do that. Happy February, everybody. See you soon. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we certainly enjoyed making it. We hope you will come back. We've got some more great content dedicated to informing, intriguing, and inspiring Miami real estate professionals. Where can you find us? We're on the podcast store, wherever podcasts are available. That's iTunes, of course. We're also on Podbean, Spotify, Audible, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can even ask Alexa about us. Go ahead and visit Cervera.com slash blog. That's where our newsroom is located. We've got some more great content there as well, market reports, and more. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Connect with us on social at CerveraRE or send us an email, Miami Real Estate Podcast at Cervera.com. We would love to hear from you. So from all of us here in Miami, where the future is always bright, until next time. Thank you.